Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. This is the third interview that I've had with Made of Commerce. We've been on a journey together in which we started out talking about Maida's art and poetry, her writing, and as that led her into a special kind of healing called story medicine, which we dealt with in part two. In this part, we're going to focus upon her use of story medicine for racial healing. If we're going to have a better future, especially together as a people broken by prejudice, misconception, and understanding, and the terrible history of hate, violence, and oppression that is the legacy of white supremacy, we have to know where we are going and have a way to get there. One of those ways of knowing where we're going comes from Maida's school of story medicine called the Race Relations Station. You can find this on her website at storymedicineworldwide.com. And under the Race Relations Statement, the vision statement says, a well-diverse and just community. And the mission statement is, racial healing and relationship building through story. That sounds to me like a good vision of where we're going and a way to get there. And so we're here today with Maida to let her talk with us about this. So welcome, Maida. Thank you for being again with me today. Thank you, David. Why don't we begin with a reading from your book, The Mending Time. Uh, it's a letter that uh, Dr. Lowry is writing to Bessie Thompson uh, in his uh, opinion, diagnosis of BJ, uh, Bessie's great niece. Um, so why don't you read that portion as a way of starting us out? Okay, so uh, it just says, I suspect that our people's plight is nothing short of the sum total legacy of slavery and Jim Crow racism that has caused the mental backs of so many to bend, splinter, or break altogether. It is reasonable to compare this to battle fatigue or shell shock on the part of combat soldiers. More specifically, a law professor colleague has argued that the white man's fear of Africanness and the idea of our inferiority have besieged our people. I lean in favor of his theory. In short, our belief that our pigmentation, view of the world, God and ourselves as inherently wrong has made our people sick. In my view, Beatrice's case is a, is a classic example of a single life affected by all these things, still showing both natural coping inclinations and uncommon resiliency. That sounds like where we are today. Mm -hmm. So talk about your use of story medicine and trying to address. And in, in, in our conversation that we had on the phone, uh, you had talked about 
your preference of using the word racial healing instead of racial reconciliation. Yes, Talk because I see uh, the the issue being white supremacy, and that has yet to be addressed in any kind of uh, real way that will result in change. So in the meantime, we're all suffering from it because we've all lived with it, and it permeates everything about how we live. Um, so I don't, in my study of history, I don't see where we've ever been together. Mm -hmm. So you can't refer to reconciliation where there's not been togetherness. Okay. Um, but racial healing, I, I do see racism as a wound, the, the, the separation uh, and existence in worlds that are polar opposite. Um, I see that as a source of pain and a, and a, and a real wound. Well, and you have you have a book coming out that kind of addresses that, don't you? you yes, I do. Um, Talk to us about your book. So it's called uh, Diamonds and Pyramids, Story Medicine for Racial Healing, and uh, it is my goal to have that book produced sometime in uh, 2021. Okay. Um, it's a book that looks at, well, it uses story medicine by way of a fable. Uh, we have to have a concrete and healing way in order to teach the children, teach, the, teach our youth um, something about this history that does not injure them. Okay. And through my fable, I think it is, it is a way, and it, it can even be a compassionate way of teaching them the essence of this experience from both sides uh, that they can work with mm -hmm. and begin to think about healing. Okay. Uh, and it's called... Well, it's a, it's a fable that I started writing five years ago. It's called The Stonecutter. And it, it just looks at the life of one man who considers himself so different from everybody that he sets out on a very destructive path because he can't connect and he can't relate. Um, and so he just, wherever he goes, he brings destruction with him. Okay. Um, so uh, the book starts with that, and then it deals with um, one particular incident in history in the uh, Virginia colony, Bacon's Rebellion, which I began studying Bacon's Rebellion in 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, take the whole thing apart and analyze it or interpret it according to the fable. Okay. And then bring us around to a place of healing. Okay. Um, 
so how have you have you used this in your in your classes? Absolutely. I use um I use the fable as a uh teaching tool for every last one of my uh, racial healing classes. Okay. And people classes and workshops when I've done extended workshops um people respond well to it. Well, and, and it's part of your wisdom school. Mm -hmm. Kind of tell us a little more about how that developed and how you kind of came up with that way of... Uh, well, story medicine is an ancient indigenous healing modality. As a teacher, I see... As a teacher coming from an indigenous frame of reference, I'll say it that way, I see no separation between teaching and healing. In this world, in my mind, they must be synonymous. Okay. Um, so after you create enough content that is in line with that idea, and you have people, enough people who have uh, been interns and graduate, and then you have classes, workshops, all of which deal with and respond to a quote-unquote original material, you realize that you have a school. I did not set out to have a school, mm -hmm. but the school somehow manifested from that, and we're continuing to grow. It's, it's amazing. Sounds like it is. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have some examples of uh, occasions that you uh, that stand out in your mind of classes that uh, were dynamic and uh, brought about healing in the way that you envision. Oh, absolutely. Um, we just completed uh, the sixth uh, section of story medicine for racial healing and because we were on zoom we had people uh, in different parts of the state and it was a just about a full class a full a full class for us is 10 people okay uh online in person we can accommodate a few more but not not many more uh this particular class had nine students and people with varying uh, learning styles, which is a little bit different for me, but I can, you know, if I understand it, I can respond to it. I can accommodate it. Um, in this class, one woman in particular had spoken to me Prior to the first meeting, I wasn't sure she was going to sign up, but she wound up signing up. I know that she had um, a long history of um, issues that are generational. I'll just say it that way. And that's not unusual, but for somebody to come into class aware of that, and trying to respond to that is unusual. So we reached a point in our study that, and, and each week uh, 
the students have a reading assignment, a music, uh, musical selection to listen to and respond to, as well as a film mm. to view and respond to. And all of them are intertwined in terms of um, subject matter. So one particular film um, just blew the roof off for this particular woman, and she came, and her paper was uh, so powerful that I couldn't keep my seat. Mm. <laughs> when she read her paper, it was like, I, you know, I felt like I was in church. Yeah. That's how, that's how moving and how... I mean, she had taken a film that I'd studied for over 10 years, pulling it apart, trying to make sure I decode every metaphor, every, I mean, this, is a, this film is a work of art. And uh, I know this just jam-packed with poetry. Um, and she saw it, and, and it met all of her needs, and she just began to throw stuff off and name stuff. And I'm like, thank you, God, mm. you know. And for that to happen in my class, uh, I told them at the end of the term, after every, uh, everybody had read every piece of work, uh, I told them that that is why I teach, okay. you know, for those kinds of moments. Do you find patterns with uh, African-American folks and then also patterns with white folks as far as how they process what you do with them? Um, so far, the African-American folks coming through my class have been few. Mm -hmm. um, and for those who have, there is almost a reluctance to go to the places that, uh, I mean, the door is open, but everybody doesn't walk through. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a certain amount of vulnerability uh, that you have to allow yourself in order to uh, complete this work. Uh, and sharing from the places where you have yet to share. So uh, black folk, when it comes to, and I know I'm going to sp speak generally here, but when it comes to the work of racial healing, I think that uh, we need a totally different uh, curriculum in a totally different um, format. Uh, it, it just, it needs to have a lot more space for creativity. It needs uh, to have a lot more uh, uh, room for discovery. Uh, I find that with white folks coming together to do this work, um, they're so eager that there isn't hesitation, at least in terms of the intellectual part of the work 
But when it comes to dropping down into the body and feeling it and being able to actually embody and touch the pain, uh, a tremendous amount of resistance from white folks. Mm. I can see that. I can yeah. see, yeah. You know that uh, you know the folks that I uh, relate to, you know, most often uh, tend to approach things from the mind. Yeah, from the neck up. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know they see that this is wrong and they want to fix it intellectually. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, and maybe even with action. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but getting into as you said since it permeates us, uh, connecting with that, that bodily and that emotionally mm-hmm. uh, is something that, that, uh, that I've had to learn along the way as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, your book, in my mind, uh, helped me with that uh, to see uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the daily lives and how all that interweaves uh, together, I thought you did just a wonderful job of, of of doing that, showing us that. Thank you so much. Um, in in your in your book, um, there's there's an interplay. There seems to be an interplay of wanting to be like everyone else, um, in in being able to enjoy doing what everybody else does. Uh, but at the same time, wanting to hold on to a, a history and a culture uh, and an integrity in that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about how that plays in, as a result of, of white supremacy within the, within the black community. Well, uh, you know, when you say that, you make me think of uh, uh, the term double consciousness. And I believe that's a Du Bois term, double consciousness. It's what is required of people uh, who are African descendant trying to live an assimilated life uh, to the degree that we've been able to assimilate, and I use that word loosely, you have to be bilingual. You have to be bicultural. You have to be, uh, it's like you split down the middle. Um, because a white man has his dictionary and def- set of definitions. And then when you go home, it's like we have our own dictionary and set of definitions. And you've got to carry them both okay. and know when to operate from which one. Okay. Because I was thinking of uh, B.J.'s mother, uh, where uh, she likes classical music. Yeah. Uh, that you have her, you know, liking classical music and, and is a pianist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and there's that, that tension of, uh, you know, enjoying that, but knowing that that's, that's part of the, the white supremacist culture. Mm-hmm. Well, she also has that in her DNA. Yeah. You know, so what what happens to those of us who have such a mixture of 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 heritage uh, that we're sort of swinging between the 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 polarities? Now talk a little bit more about that in your mind, uh, the mixture of DNA. 
um, and how that plays into Okay, so this is hard, uh, but I'll say it this way. Um, I was taught that DNA is a combination of energy and information. Okay. Um, and so it's not set because energy can always change form. Information can be updated. At the same time, you've got that in your in the cells in every cell of your body, and some of them, uh, just to use the two. I mean, certainly there could be other influences as well. But if you've got a European influence and an African influence, that's enough to uh, that's enough to cause some issues. Okay. You know? <laughs> yeah. To say the least. Yeah. You know, based on what we know. Yeah. Um, at the same time, we have adapted to all these conditions. We have uh, tried to rise to all these challenges. We have morphed ourselves um, over the centuries. If, let me just use one example. I believe that the self, or I understand the self to be a, a blend of one's sacred identity, purpose or gift, and path. And so, uh, and, and when I say sacred, I mean God-given. You know, so these are the things that have already been imprinted on you before your birth. Um, you're asking me about, you're asking me about white supremacy. Right, the blend of that. Yes, and so in the course of... Um, the centuries since emancipation and the year 2020. We're now in the 21st century. Um, with that understanding of the self, and we have survived uh, the horrific uh, experience of slavery, that, that whole history and legacy, and moved from thinking of ourselves and being called colored, Negro, which is a, both of those terms are uh, externally placed. Uh -huh. You know, this is what I will call you, and therefore this is what, what your name will be. Okay. Name means nature. And so if I don't even know what those words mean, then what is my nature? How, how am I going to, what will my affect look like? You know, is that just something that uh, I'm trying to live up to your expectation of my potential or lack thereof? What does that do to my sense of who I am? Um, so that's point number one. 
So you move from the word Negro, which has no geographical correspondence. It has no origin on the planet, uh, but it does mean black, to the word black, which still has, I can't locate myself anywhere, any, uh, I mean, everybody else has an ethnic origin and can point to that and some form of uh, cultural heritage, uh, language, religion, you know, all the other mores, they could point to that. Ours has been wiped off. Uh, so we then, in the 1990s, some leaders got together and decided, okay, let's call ourselves African American. Do you realize that at, in 1990 it had been 130-odd years since emancipation, and some of us were still fighting, and we'll still fight today. I am not African. I don't know anything about Africa. Mm -hmm. We'll still fight that. And that, to me, is a tragedy because you did not materialize out of thin air. Right. And what was taken from you doesn't mean it didn't exist. It can't be erased. It's in the cells of your body. Mm. You know, so, uh, and I have deep feelings about that because how can I be whole as a human being without an identity, you know, that matches up with history? Okay. There's a, there's a passage in the forward uh, of your Blues Doula poetry book mm -hmm. uh, by mm -hmm. Maria Hamilton Abogande. Mm -hmm. uh, and she <laughs> talks about that your poem, Blues Doula, um, um, brings to a crescendo and mimics uh, the lonely rage mm -hmm. of being black, mm -hmm. being woman, uh, the pretense of being all right, and the weariness of nothing being right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And today, at the time of, uh, you know, we, we have this year probably heard the word white supremacy more than at any other time. It's being discussed, it's being explored, it's being, uh, it's being faced, I think, um, in a way that has caused us to awaken uh, in brand new ways. Uh, so to have that, to have the violence that has required those conversations mm -hmm. be in our faces in a time of COVID, you know, um, and then all of the fallout as a result to uh, these things. It's, it is, uh, the kind of time that I've never seen before, and I lived through the 60s. Yeah. I've never seen anything like this. The intensity of it is incredible. Uh, and so that, that piece that you just read by Dr. Abegunde, 
um, she, she, she says it. She describes exactly how I'm feeling right now. So in your classes uh, with primarily white people, yep. Um, what is healing? Because because and I agree. Uh, it's one of the things that um, uh, one of the authors that I've I've been influenced by is a, is an educator on liberation theology, uh, revelation philosophy called Pedagogy of the Oppressed, uh, Pablo Freire. Uh, talks about that liberation is is a, is both. It's not just the liberation of the oppressed, but the liberation of the oppressor. And and you talk about that we all are permeated right uh, by by this white supremacy. And so um, for folks like me, who's white, uh, how does healing in your mind? What does that mean? Healing, um, healing, holy, wholeness. These words are related in terms of their uh, derivation. And so basically you could say that they were so related that they could be synonymous. But to be whole, my teacher taught that Healing is the return of the memory of wholeness. So I, tr I, I set up my classroom experience so that people can begin to remember who they are. Begin to remember the truths that they have not told. To sort of bridge the gap and, and narrow the distance between um, their authentic self and their uh, uh, self-image and begin to speak that language in the class. Okay. That's the, I, I, I mean, I, I, I set it up so that people will go to those. I shouldn't say it that way. I invite them to go to those depths, and most do. Okay. Yeah. Um, how, can, how can this be applied uh, in school settings? Because, um, like, um, my my wife was a public school teacher, and um, she struggled with uh, hearing frequently, uh, often African American uh, young women uh, say to one another, uh, "This is white." And so there was a resistance, and and she struggled with seeing seeing that there's this this you know brokenness and 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 how how can someone like like she, you know a teacher in 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 the middle school classroom uh, how can she go about working what you're talking about? Um, first of all, 
educators need to make their own healing journey. Because the truth of it is that we do live in two distinctly different worlds. And right now, those worlds are colliding. So if I've done my inner work, and I know where my wounded places are, and I have explored my shadow, you know, that place where I really have been taught, don't go. You know, just ignore that totally because uh, you can't handle what's there. Um, so that's the first thing. I, I, I believe that every educator has to have done their personal work. And uh, I believe that Parker Palmer speaks to this in his, in his writing. And one book in particular, uh, The Courage to Teach, uh, he talks about where you place yourself in the classroom setting as a, as a, as a teacher. Uh, to facilitate something as opposed to um, giving the students information. No, you're there to facilitate an opening, a, a, a flow of something coming out of the students. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is particularly uh, people who are teaching K through 12. Um, if you don't understand that collision, if you don't understand the two worlds concept and the difference between one world and the other and the, and the difference between the dynamic between black and white, that white is up top, black is on the bottom. Mm -hmm. If you don't understand that, then you cannot teach these children You've got to be able to step into their language and culture and experience and honor that. And you've got to be able to understand the type of oppression that they have, um, that they have already endured, uh, if not overcome. I, t I, I did substitute teaching back in uh, uh, the early 2000s. Uh, in fact, 2001 through 4, and taught uh, grades pre-K through 3 back in Georgia and learned to identify which student had already been silenced and shut down, you know, so that you could barely hear their voices. I could pick them out of a crowd, mm. you know. Turn them loose on the... Uh, playground, they're free, they're, you know, they're, you could hear them, their voices above everybody else, but back in that classroom, they've been taught to see themselves as nothing and nobody, and they speak in a whisper. What does that tell you? You need to understand what the signs are, and to be able to speak to and evoke that voice. If every child were taught that their voice was important, and if every child were taught that they got something inside of them that you just want to catch a glimpse of and honor and develop and call forth, 
if every child was taught that what had happened to them is important enough for them to speak about. I taught ninth grade as a permanent uh, teacher in the inner city of Chicago. One child, and I, I went in there wanting to do story medicine. I felt, felt like this was going to be a perfect tool for these, these children. Um, and I began to have them tell their stories on paper. One boy told that he had seen his father murdered. I think he was something like nine years old when it happened. And he had seen it happen, and he had never recovered. And then he drew a picture of himself with tears falling down his face. These sh that's a typical story. You know, uh, the loss of a parent to, to violence, incarceration, drugs. You know, um, you have got to have an incredible smorgasbord of skill in order to uh, teach children at that level who have seen and suffered uh, so much. One of the things you talk about in your, in your novel um, is the uh, frequencies, not the word, um, the, the number of women in your novel uh, that is children were sexually Absolutely. Taboo. And how do you see this, I mean, as a part of the, this, the white supremacy uh, that laid the groundwork for that kind of thing? It's very, it's very deep, uh, but it, uh, it has its origin in slavery and also, uh, you know, the silencing and um, I don't have a, a full language for it, but what was done, what was done to uh, silence and disempower, I'll use that, the men, they could not protect. It's like their hands were tied. Uh -huh. And so, you know, the first scene of the, of the film, um, Selma right. has, has this, a, as well as the first scene of 12 Years a Slave. Uh -huh. You know, 12 Years a Slave is a true story, it's not fiction. Right. You know, so um, if this is commonplace then, and there has been no intervention, uh, this kind of trauma is part of your DNA, and you, you, you live with that. Also, what the church teaches, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but the teachings of the Bible as relates to sex uh, are shame-based, I have to say it. And, I, and I'm sure that's not news to most of us. Um, and so if you, you got those two things going, and this has been your primary input, what? do you think it's going to translate to? Right. Okay. Yeah. 
So how do you help? Because you talked about that that it, your classes were, were primarily white. How do how do how do we together uh, tell stories together? Because uh, you were talking about the need for a separate curriculum for black folk, uh, and uh, so yeah, how do we how do we begin to bring the two stories together? Um, we. We have to begin to imagine that, but at, at this point, uh, it's, you know, having the courage to speak it uh, in both camps, having that courage. And then once we've done enough of that, there'll be a groundswell of energy to, to bring us together. And I believe we miss each other so much that there's a desire for that coming together. But let's, let us not uh, jump the gun before the work is done. Let us make sure that we have placed the oxygen mask over our own face and relearned how to breathe because there hadn't been enough oxygen so far. Mm, mm, that's a good image. Yeah. Um, so our time is about up. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how do you want to end this? What will you, you want my audience to hear from you and to know um, about what you do, about uh, what you want to see happen? I heard um, this is simpler than we might think. At the same time, let me say, story medicine is not just um, an approach to teaching slash healing. It is uh, it is liberation. And I think I, I, I want to emphasize that, uh, again, to bring together um, teaching with healing so that they are intertwined, as well as the importance, the vital importance of the story. I heard recently somebody say that once you hear a person's story, you can't hate them. And so I, I think it boils down to that. But we've got to be willing to open our mouths and to cough up, and particularly on the part of white folks who have not told their race story yet. Mm. That's what's missing from the equation of racial healing in our community. Black folk have told it. In fact, we're tired of telling it, and that's why there's this shutdown. Uh -huh. You know, I'm tired of thinking about it. I let me move on to something else because if if I tell it, what's going to change? Right. Is there there's that. But with white folk, and that's why uh, white space right now is so important because there's so much that has not been said that needs to be coughed up. 
Well, this has been a blessing to hear your wisdom, uh, to learn about your own journey, uh, and how you have used that uh, to create a bigger and better and more healing, healthy vision for us all. So thank you for the work that you do. Uh, let me remind my audience uh, to go to storymedicineworldwide.com uh, to find more about what Meta does. Let me encourage you to take classes. Uh, there are more classes than just the racial healing class. There's the healing in all kinds of ways uh, that you do. And uh, so uh, I want to encourage you to explore thoroughly the website and then the Race Relations Station uh, with Community Action uh, is a place that we all need to visit and, and be a part of as well. So Maida, thank you deeply. Uh, thank you, for being my guest, these three interviews. Thank you. And it's blessings been my to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Again, I want to thank Carol and Tony Asiagi for letting us use their West Asheville Garden Retreat and Sanctuary to record this interview. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings.